Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, a less depressing and methadone-voiced Barry Katz. I am very, very grateful for all of you. This past uh, year uh, ending and the transition was kind of crazy for me, and I thank you so much. You have no idea how wonderful all of you were with all your emails and texts and tweets That's right. I said it right. I didn't say Twitters. I said tweets. And uh, every message you've sent, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages. And I'm very, very grateful. You know, when you start something like this off with a dollar and a dream and for some reason, somehow people start listening and liking it and it helps them. It's always a wonderful thing. So I'm very, very grateful to all of you who listen and pass it on and tell your friends who tell their friends and those kind of things. I'm excited about today because my guest is a slightly disabled Ken Mock who does a lot of things, but he's best known for a fantastic show that's been on the air since I was born, America's Top Model. And as I sit across from Ken, what happens is normally, as you know, this show, something just happens and it just clicks on in my brain and I have a thought about something and I just go with it and hopefully it's a story that makes some kind of a difference. And as I look across from Ken, the first thing that comes to mind is an experience I had with Ken about 10 years ago. I had... uh, 
started doing a pilot that I'd been working on and went to Ken because Ken was a guy who I, I loved. He wasn't doing a lot of scripted in his new company then that I know of. I hadn't known of anything that he had necessarily gotten on the air at that point in time on a half-hour scripted show. But I knew him from the network ranks where he was always great to me, always nice, always loved talent. And when Dane Cook wanted to do a pilot, we put something together with a guy named Michael Curtis, who was a great writer at the time. And we had John Weitzel, who was a great, fun director, who's Patrick Weitzel's brother, who is a a great, great uh, agent. Really, really a wonderful, fun time that we had on the set putting it together. And one of the things that I remember vividly about this uh, Dane Cook pilot called Humor Me, and it was a great, great project, but there was one guy that we cast that really, in my mind, changed the face of the project in a fun, unique way that added something and a dynamic that normally you don't have in a show, and that was Tony Cox. For those of you who don't know Tony, he is about three feet tall, he's African-American, and he is one of the funniest guys that you'll ever see on screen. And I learned something from Tony, because Tony was a guy, he probably was closer to 50 than he was to 40. He wasn't a Harvard graduate, he might not even have been a college graduate, he might not even have finished high school. At the time, I remember him taking me aside because he was the kind of guy that just had behind the scenes a little bit of anxiety about how to deliver and how to make it work. Was he going to do the best possible job? Because he was obsessed with doing an incredible job. I mean, his whole thing was, and I talk about holy shit moments all the time, and if you're going to do something great in this world of entertainment, you have to create holy shit moments. And Tony Cox was a guy who was obsessed with creating holy shit moments. If he wasn't on a set and didn't do something that stole a scene or really created that moment, he wasn't happy. And he would work tirelessly reading the script over and over and over again and spending hours and hours and hours. And when it came time to doing that show, granted, yes, when you're doing a half-hour sitcom, Jerry Seinfeld would be the first one to tell you. Your star of the show, he's your grounding point. And he might not always be the funniest person in the show at that particular time. It's Michael Richards, it's Jason Alexander, it's Julia... And in this particular show, Dane was so hyper and so funny. But in the show, you have to have a grounding point for him as well. Even though there's crazy moments for him, you have to have him grounded. And you have to have other characters around him that are absolutely crazy that you have in your real life that you wish that there was a way you could put them in a sitcom, but there's no way to do it. And Tony Cox was that guy. He played Dane's boss in The Office, and it was just an incredible dynamic. If you are out there doing anything, anything in the entertainment business or anything in any business, and you want to know what it's like to create great moments that'll take your career to the next level, just watch any scene that Tony Cox is in. 
watch a scene of bad Santa in the boxing ring or at when Billy Bob Thornton is drunk on the Santa's chair. Watch me, myself, and Irene when he's with Jim Carrey after he delivers him to, after he delivers him to the house after the wedding with the nunchucks. You just watch any scene that Tony Cox is in and he will blow you the fuck away. The issue for Tony Cox in his profession might not be the issue for all of you in your professions because Tony Cox, unfortunately, there's only about seven roles a year that come up for a little person. If there's 10, it's a miracle. So every time he goes into an audition, he has to go in and there's literally like 200 little people fighting for one role, the same people every time. And he's got to beat those people out every single time. He doesn't have the advantage that, let's say, Dane Cook or or any actor who's just a, an able-bodied actor who's just a straight-ahead person who can be mainstream but can go either way. Tony Cox can't play a Brad Pitt role. He's always going to have to play a certain kind of role. And even if there's a role for a boss that at the time, I believe, we were thinking about not going for a little person, going for it, going back and forth, but he got that role, which which was fantastic. And the, the point I'm trying to make here is that when you're in your job or anything you do, figure out a way to create these holy shit moments like Tony does. And people will always want to work with you. They will always respect you. And they will always give you more responsibility. And if you're an actor, they'll give you more lines. Hell, if you're a lawyer, they'll give you more cases. Whatever it is, that's the way it is. And that's what we found out, Ken and myself and John Weitzel and Dane Cook. When Tony Cox came on the set, we really weren't sure how it was going to go. We weren't as familiar with his work. But I guarantee you, when the shoot was over and we were asked, hey, would you hire Tony Cox again or would you not hire him again? Unanimously across the board, it would be we would hire that guy any day of the week, any time. And so create holy shit moments, blow people away, and take your career to the highest level. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited. I got a disabled Ken Mock here, and we're going to have the greatest show. It's going to be fun because this is a kind of a different lane that we normally do, and you're going to learn a lot about the business. Uh, it's Hopefully it'll be inspiring, and we'll have fun along the way. But I have to give Ken the proper introduction, which may take longer than the cold open, as you know. Ken Mock is the founder and president of 10 by 10 Entertainment, a production company that produces TV, film, and alternative media. 
He is considered one of the godfathers of reality TV, along with, I will add, John Murray, Mark Burnett, and him. Of course, John Murray, The Real World, Mark Burnett, launched in 2000, Survivor, and that's where Ken Mock launched his first reality show, which was phenomenal, Making the Band. Mock is one of the most well-known producers in the television industry today. He's most known for his positive, aspirational TV series, ones in which the contestants are trying to achieve a dream of some kind. Mock is the creator and executive producer of America's Top Model. The show is now in its 22nd cycle. I'm in my 22nd cycle. Well, not exactly. That's, I've, got, I've got a lot of cycles. It's not only a domestic hit, but a worldwide phenomenon as well, airing in more than 150 territories of the world and spawning dozens of international spinoffs. Among the many other television projects produced under the 10 by 10 banner are the CW Network's The Pussycat Dolls Presents, Girlicious, VH1's The White Rapper Show, ABC MTV's Make the band, as I mentioned before, A&E's The Love Shack, starring the iconic Shaquille O'Neal, NASCAR and BET's Changing Lanes, and MTV's WWE Tough Enough. The company's produced series in conjunction with virtually every broadcast network, including ABC, NBC, CW, Fox, USA, and A&E. 10 by 10 also produces scripted series as well, and is currently developing several primetime series in both the half-hour and hour formats. In addition, the TV, Mock produced the major motion picture Invincible, a film based on the true life story of Vince Papali, starring Mark Wahlberg. He's also producing a new film for Fox based on the life of entrepreneur Joy Mangano. David O. Russell is attached to direct the film with Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro attached to star. Hacks. Film begins production in early February. Mock has also written and is producing a biopic pick based on the life of James Harris, the NFL's first starting African-American quarterback. He has also served as director for nearly all of his television series and pilots, working with Tyra Banks, Shaquille O'Neal, Robin Anton, and Nicole Scherzinger of the Pussycat Dolls, and many others. In addition to TV, Mock is also active in the digital space, developing projects in the online world as well as mobile applications. He's the owner of... Lot 5 Media, a production and post facility located in Los Angeles. The 40,000 square foot facility services productions through all phases of pre-production to post. Ladies and gentlemen, the man, the myth, the disabled legend, Ken Mock. Barry, thank you for having me on. It's, it's humbling to be here. I, I, I got to tell you, I was nervous. I was actually uh, hesitant to come on your show because you've had such a list of great luminaries here. And I really didn't think I can contribute anything. And frankly, you're the legend in the business. <laughs> it's the truth. You are the legend in the business. I've known you for 20-something years, and uh, you're like at the heart of the business. People should be interviewing you every week for your <laughs> podcast because you have more stories probably from one month than I have in my whole lifetime. So. Thank you so it's much. It's an honor man. to be here. Thank oh, you. Oh, that that means a lot. I feel like it's Sammy Davis Jr. and Carson on the couch. This is beautiful. <laughs> I do have a lot of stories. Honestly, I don't. This is the weird part. Is my sons always ask me to tell them a story. Yeah. 
And I find it like I've run out of stories about my real, like, personal life that relates to the kids. Yeah. But I've never seemed to run out of stories about the business, which lets me know that clearly I'm spending too much time in the business and not enough time with myself personally to take care of things. So I got to work more on those stories. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I was thinking about this as I was, I was driving over today. I was like, you know, I'm a guy who's worked in the, like, if you look at my resume, I've worked in the heart of the business for 25 years. But I've never really been, I'm not really part part of the business because I'm not part of the social fabric of Hollywood. I don't go to parties and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm really kind of a nose to the grindstone guy. And I envy people like you because Barry, you're like, you are the business. You know, you're in the center of the business. You have relationships with, you can't walk down the street or go into a restaurant without, hey, Barry, hey, Barry, Jerry, <laughs> you know, I'm watching comedians in cars getting coffee and there you are doing a cameo there. And I'm always kind of in awe of that because it's like, you know, everybody in the business. Every comedian, every actor, every actress, every network president, blah, blah, blah. So, like, you you are the business. And I'm kind of on the outside, and I look at people like you. It's like, wow, I wish I could be like Barry and just, like, know everybody. But I'm just kind of, like, on the periphery looking in. You're right in the center. You're right in the eye of the hurricane. It's very interesting. Thanks, man. I wish yeah. I could meet more women who felt that way about <laughs> this. Um, but, no, I appreciate that. That means a lot. I just, yeah. you know, it is weird because you don't think about it that way I know my place. Mm. I've I know my place where I am, but I don't look at myself that way as much as the way you say it. Yeah, I do know that if I call Suzanne Daniels, she's going to pick up the phone or mm. call me back. I do know if I call Paul Lee or if I call Bob Greenblatt, they are going to call me back. And it, yeah. maybe it's because I've known them throughout their careers when they were at certain levels in the beginning, working their way up. It, what's great is that they understand that at any given time, all it takes is one thing and you never know where it's going to come from. Just like CSI, a guy walks in a room for Steve McPherson and never did anything before. Mm -hmm. The people bringing it, you thought, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Took a chance. You take those chances. And, and so no matter what I do, if I've done a show last year or last week or five years ago, I know they'll still take the meeting because you never know what's going to happen. Well, and you never know for me what I'm going to bring in the room or what's going to go in and and luckily for me, they, they will answer the phone. Well, I think it also has to do with, like, you're, you are an amazing evaluator of talent, right? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, a football team hires a general manager. You know talent. And I, I still remember back in 1994 or 5, and I was first going up to the Montreal Just for Laughs. And we talked. We just talked about this when I came in. It's like... You basically like hijacked, it was my first year up there, and you hijacked that <laughs> festival because I think you like you didn't get enough people in the festival or something like that, so you took over this other comedy store or something like that, and so we had all these other executives leave the festival <laughs> and go to that thing, and I just remember it was like it was like uh, Wanda Sykes, and uh, there was a whole bunch of like... Um, Chappelle, Chappelle, Hammond, Daryl Hammond, Brewer, yeah, Tracy Morgan. It was like it was like all this incredible talent that's not like huge, huge stars. I'm like, who is this guy? But I just remember who is this out. guy with the ponytail and cowboy boots? Yeah, uh, yeah. But I remember hanging out with you there a little bit, and I was kind of like this green-eyed, you know, like new newbie. And you were hanging out with Chappelle, and he was getting stoned off in the corner, and you know, Dane Cook, and all the, you know, whatever it was, all these people. And uh, I just remember, like, this guy is like the in the in the heart of the business, and it was just fascinating to see that. That was like my 
my kind of like induction into the business in a lot of ways. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Yeah, and those who yeah. listen to this podcast probably know that story, but it, it just, you know, I, it, there was a no that was presented to me by the festival. No, you don't got anybody in this year. Oh, you didn't get anybody? No, you don't have anybody in, and uh, <laughs> thank you for submitting. And I just, I remember calling comedy clubs. I called a place called the Comedy Works, which now just closed down, actually, a guy named Jimbo, and he couldn't do it because he was aligned with the festival. And I called this guy named Ernie Butler, the late Ernie Butler, a really wonderful man at the Comedy Nest. And like anything, most of us are in sales. We don't even know it, but we're in sales. Yeah. And he just got on the phone and told this guy what I wanted to do. And unbelievably, he said, yes, I'll give you the room Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You can do whatever you want. If you're going to bring those people in, uh, we'll do it. And I didn't know I was going to get the industry in. And so f- for those of you who haven't heard the story, what I did was I there was no uh, email back then. Yeah. So all I had was uh, Variety and the Hollywood Reporter to put an ad in, which was like three thousand dollars each. I didn't have three thousand dollars. I don't even know how I did it, but I put a full page ad announcing that I was going to do something up there for the three nights, and then I faxed invitations to all the executives I knew and those I didn't, and I'd stay up and pull all nighters, and I just fax one page at a time to each entity. And then every night I do it again. So I just kept barraging them with these invitations. Wow. And so when the time came for these shows, over 250 industry people came and I got five uh, development deals for my clients out of that. And then uh, Disney wanted to do an overall deal with me. And I did a four year (laughs) executive producer deal with them. And they gave me offices in a penthouse in Burbank. And uh, it just... Again, creating holy shit moments. I took the no, turned it into a yes. And then the Montreal Festival met with me about two months after that. They flew to L.A. and they said, Barry, um, we we know you called us and asked for our approval. And we know we said yes, because we really didn't think anything was going to happen. But uh, 
you got the only five deals of the festival. That, and uh, That's amazing. I didn't know that. And we don't want that to happen again. So let's work together and let's uh, let's work through the festival from now on. And I did from now on. I've had a great relationship with that's them. Amazing. And they brought industry standard to the festival in our first year last year where I interviewed uh, Kent Alterman. So they've been really good to me. That That is fantastic story. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's just an out-of-the-box move. And uh, that look, that that story that you just told is is typical of what you need to do in this business to make it. Because, you know, I've told many classes of this about this, but, you know, nobody's going to do shit for you in this business, <laughs> right? Nobody. You have to do it for yourself. If you, if you sit in your office and you think, oh, my agent or my manager or whoever's going to bring me stuff and blah, 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 sometimes that happens. But most of the time you got to go out and do for yourself. And uh, that is the prototypical story of doing for yourself. And that's, look, that's been my career. I've had to do everything and for I think myself. The, and, and you've done a great job, obviously. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I feel has is is a paradox in a way as a manager because I'm guilty, very guilty of doing things for artists that have leapfrogged them over other people right. where I created a situation that was an unfair advantage <laughs> and they move forward and they got a gig. An example of this in my mind, Daryl Hammond in Saturday Night Live. And when I met Daryl Hammond, uh, he was a journeyman comedian from Florida, mm -hmm. had never done a television program. His resume was blank except for comedy clubs. Right. And he was probably around 40 years old, but he had a skill for the impression. Right. And he had great material around the impression. And for those of you who don't know who aren't in the entertainment business and those of you who are and in comedy, there's a reason why when you go out there to comedy clubs, there aren't that many people who do impressions. It's not that there's not that many people who can't do impressions. It's that there aren't that many people who can do impressions where the material they write for the impression is better than the impression or as good. Because the problem with impressionists who die is they have the great impression and then they don't have the material to follow it and they die afterwards. They can't figure out a way to follow their own impression. Daryl never had that problem. Mm. And the unfair advantage I created for Daryl when he agreed to have me manage him because he said he sat down in my office and he said, you know, he's meeting with a lot of managers. He said, I came to New York from Florida to be on Saturday Night Live. And I said to him, if I don't get you on Saturday Night Live, fire me. Wow. I will get you on Saturday Night Live. Now, I didn't know technically that I would get him on Saturday Night Live, but I knew in my heart that if anybody was going to have a chance of getting him on, it was going to be me because I felt like I knew how to prepare performers with a specific skill set, and I knew how to work with them in their own unique way. You know, for instance, Jim Brewer, who got SNL, I didn't do half of the things technically that I did with Daryl because Jim was a free spirit and he had just been fired from a show called Buddies. And I believe he was more fragile at that point than Daryl, who hadn't had the shit kicked out of him professionally yet. And who was his co-star on Buddies? Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. When I, that's when I was at ABC in comedy. That's right. Comedy development. That's right. Yeah. And so with Jim, my philosophy was this guy's a free spirit. Let him come to you and tell you what he's going to do. Let him show you what he's doing, how he's doing it. 
and then you know make comments make adjustments tell them little like, suggestions that you think have them run it a few times but don't as jay moore would say a great expression don't spook the thoroughbred <laughs> and you know jim had already been spooked and beaten up in this business unfairly and so I work with him a different way. You have to be a chameleon, but for dare now I we, we create an unfair advantage with Jim Brewer because there was an NBC executive that was wonderful to me that I'll never forget. Her name was Amy Walpert. And she was very, very helpful in getting me and getting him in front of Lauren when Lauren probably wasn't as as uh, into seeing Jim at the time and especially with what happened to him, because how many people get fired from a television show? And somebody says from the most iconic show in the world, yeah, bring that guy in. I'd love to hire a guy that just got fired from a show where they had an ad and TV guide full page. And then they changed it and pulled the show. Give me that guy for my next cast member. That's like, it shows you the brilliance of Lauren and he always gives everything a shot and every, but the fact is, is that the unfair advantage was Amy Walpert helping us get in a different way. And I think a week before SNL, Jim was hired. Daryl was a situation where I knew he did impressions. He had no tape that was great of any circumstance. So I had him film a, a video at Caroline's Comedy Club. I edited it down. I believe in FedEx, as you know on the show. I FedEx, I FedExed it to uh, Lauren and Marcy, and they watched it. Uh, thankfully, again, if you have relationships, people will watch things that you give them. They'll listen to you. They might not tell you that they listen to you. Some people have a style where they don't let you. They don't want to let you know that they listen to you or talk to you. But the evidence is they actually call you. Hey, I watched this, and he got the test. And where I think the unfair advantage was created for Daryl with my skill set was that when we were working on the test of how he was going to do the test, when I saw him do it, it was great. It was great. But there was something in my mind that said, you're not going to get SNL just being great. There's a lot of great people. We have to figure out something and going with the theme of the holy shit moment we have to think about something that could immediately Lorne, you know, Lorne or anybody, a high school student or a genius could look at and say, huh, that could plug and play right here on one of our first shows. And I asked him, were there any impressions that he did that he didn't have jokes for yet that were great impressions that he didn't do in his stand-up act? And as I think I've told once before on the podcast... He told me there was one impression that he did that he didn't have jokes for that he thought was great. And I said, what is it? He said, Ted Koppel. <laughs> I said, I just like, like that again, like the cold open, like that. It just snapped in my head. That's it. Your test is going to be a Nightline episode and your characters are going to come in and out of the Nightline episode with oh, Ted Koppel introducing them. And sure enough, we worked on it. We worked on it probably 100 hours, uh, me and him gutting it out. And he tested. They liked him. They asked him back to test again. And we worked on that again. For those of you, it's well documented that on that first episode of Saturday Night Live that he was a cast member on, the cold open was Nightline with Ted Koppel. Wow. And he's had like 
the longest tenure on long, SNL of anybody. The right? longest tenure. And now he's the announcer. Which probably to him is a greater honor than actually doing the show for 12 years because he revered Don Pardo right. and so did I. But in true of talking about what you talked about with the Montreal Festival, it's just, it just that unfair advantage sometimes. And when I did the festival, I did that. I created an unfair advantage for those artists uh, over the other artists because yeah. I worked a little harder. I worked a little smarter and they had to deliver. And granted, I had 16 or 18 people up there and five got a development deal, but, you know, 11 didn't. And 11 of them didn't uh, get the attention of the people or do what it took. But that's a pretty good percentage, like 33%. But the point I'm trying to make, I think as a manager, I've done things certain times that I feel has allowed the artist maybe to say, hey, I don't have to really work as hard on this particular thing because Barry can do this, this, and this. And all I have to do is knock it home once he gets me there. And I think today, I think artists are realizing that it's a different world and you have to do your own things to create those holy shit moments that you give to your manager and agent. And then they take those and they take you to the next level. Right. But as I always like to do, Ken, in these podcasts, I always like to start off way, way back (laughs) in the way back machine in the beginning of time. Yeah. Take me back to where you grew up your family situation, the whole dynamic, and where you were before you found out you wanted to be in the entertainment business, and what was the inspiration, the first one, to get you into this world? (laughs) Wow, way back. So I grew up in uh, the suburbs of New York. I grew up in a place called Larchmont. Joan Rivers grew up there. Joan Rivers. She lived down the uh, street from me. David O. Russell is from Larchmont. Relationships, uh, everybody. David O'Russell yeah. directing your film. Uh, Matt uh, Dillon is from uh, Larchmont. It's, it's funny. There's, it's like this little small suburban town, but there's a lot of people from the entertainment business have come out of there. Uh, I, I came from a completely non-showbiz family. My father was uh, worked for the United Nations. My mother was a, a college professor. Like completely no knowledge of pop culture. They were like eggheads. What and country were they from? They're China. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in the U.S. And they just, they were like classical music nuts. And my sister was like a Juilliard pianist. And they pe- spent all their attention on her. So basically. Wait know, a second. So you were, you were somebody who clearly were not your parents' favorite. N- no, I was kind of like the guy that was under the radar. And thankfully so, because they paid so much attention to my sister, my older sister, who was like this child prodigy. Like, she was the youngest person ever accepted to Juilliard. She was four years old when she got there. She was accepted to Juilliard at four. Yeah, she was, like, playing, like, concertos at three. We have we have film of her, like, playing these concertos, like, you know, by just off. She would listen to a piece of music and just play it. So in your opinion, what do you think that is? Do you believe in, like, there's something, like, people lived in another life? Or yeah. what, do you, what do you think that no, is? No, I, I do. That, that's, like... That that's not something she was taught. She never picked up. She never like took piano lessons or anything. It was just all of a sudden one day she's three. She's like playing the piano and like somebody plays a song on the radio and all of a sudden she's playing it with you know two hands, not just one hand, two hands, right? The bass and the melody, and it was just crazy. So that's that's something that comes from someplace else. And so she got put on the pedestal in our family very early on because, like I said, my mother and father revered like classical music, like. 
you know, they had they know nothing about the business. They know they don't know who they don't know who Jennifer Lawrence is. They don't know who Robert De Niro is. They, they, they don't. You can ask them. They have no idea. But they love classical music. So, like the focus of my growing up, it was all on her. So I got to be whatever I wanted to be. And you know, I come from a very kind of like you know Chinese families are very much like like Jewish families, like very much in common, like. <laughs> education, you got to play musical instruments by this time. You got a mother who's like a tiger mom who's in your face all the time. But I got to, you know, do whatever I wanted because they were so focused on her. I was a, you know, kind of a fuck up. I was not paying attention to school. I was very smart, but I never studied. And and the one thing that I was good at was I, lo- I just watched TV all the time and I just knew I was good at TV. I said, I, I could do this. I could be, I remember in, in 10th grade, I said, if I become a producer, I'll be a good television producer. But coming from this Chinese family, like, they're like, no, you have to, you know, get your education, you have to get an MBA, you have to become a lawyer and that kind of stuff. And so I, I didn't have the guts to go into the entertainment business. And I, I didn't know anybody in the entertainment business. I, I was so far removed. It was like in a different universe, right? So I ended up going to Boston University. I went to the management school. I was- studying, Which is where I went. Right. And uh, studying to get my finance degree. SMG. In the school of management, right? And I hated it. I hated it. And so uh, in my junior year, I said, you know, I'm going to also enroll in the School of Communications, which you, SPC, right? You were in SPC. I was, believe it or not, Sergeant College of Allied Health Professions. I worked with the disabled <laughs> well, I, oh before God. I got in this business. That's crazy. I know. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, my whole profession was working with disabled kids and adults. That is so weird. Oh, my God. Well, anyway, so you were in uh, Sergeant. I was in SPC, SPC and SMG. And then uh, I ended up getting an internship at WBZ in Boston. And then I ended up not doing anything in finance. I went to work for CNN. I, I went down to Atlanta and I worked at CNN as a as a news journalist. And uh, I, I just remember I hated it. And uh, I remember being in the newsroom down in Atlanta and and this was the days where Ted Turner would walk around in his bathrobe. He would sleep there and come down into like the commissary at like 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. with a cup of coffee and eggs and go into the control room and order people around in his bathroom. It was very, very weird. But I do remember there was one day I was producing like one of the news programs. And everybody in the news business, I'm just telling you, they're either alcoholics, they're you know recovering drug addicts, they're always like divorced like four times, and they're making like no money. And I remember one night I was like doing the international hour and both my anchors were in the drunk tank. What's a drunk tank? They were like in jail, like sober and getting sober. And I had no, so we had to get filling anchors. And my boss was a chain smoker and he was making like $38,000 a year. And I just looked around the newsroom. I was like, I don't want to be like this in 20 years. And I said, you know what? I'm, at this point, I got to take this chance of going to the entertainment business or I'm going to be one of these guys in 10, 15 years you know, smoking a pack a day, drinking, not being, you know, getting on my third divorce and being really, really unhappy. But I, I watched TV and I said, you know, where, what, where can I start out in the business? And I remember the Cosby show was shooting in New York in Astoria. I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a job on the Cosby show and I'm going to move back and live with my parents, get into the business and then see where, where it goes. So I called the producer of the show, this woman, Terry Guarneri, like, I know Terry. Yeah. Okay. I called her every week for like three times a week. You hear that, everybody? Yeah. I, Persi- I didn't know how the business Persistence. Worked. Persistence. But I just looked on the credits of the Cosby show. Finally, she says to me one day, she goes, okay, we're going we're gonna to start production. 
we need a wardrobe driver. <laughs> you got to get up here in three days. So I, I go to my boss at CNN and I say, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm leaving, I'm going up to CNN in three days. He has a shit fit. You're going up to uh, New, York. New York in three yeah. days. He has a shit fit. He goes, you know what? You're not giving me any notice. I put my faith in you. I really thought you had a future here. I got a shit list a mile long. You're on the top of the list. And I was like, well, I'm sorry. And I left. And I drove my car, this little Honda Civic from Atlanta back to New York. And I get on the set of the uh, Cosby show. <laughs> And immediately I'm fetching coffee for like, you know, Keisha Knight, whatever, Vanessa and all, all Keisha Knight Pulliam. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, after the first day I go home and I'm like, I made the biggest mistake in my life. What have I done? I, I, I was producing newscasts and now I'm here and I'm fetching coffee and lunch for these kids. And God bless, my mom said to me, she goes, don't, don't go back. I mean, you can call your boss back at CNN and get your job back, but I wouldn't do it. Stick it out. So. Your was, mom was very wise. Yeah, I mean, I got to thank her to this. She's a pretty smart woman. And just, and just so you people know in the audience, to get this gig, Terry Guaneri never would have called him if he hadn't called three times a week. No, I was bugging she called. She would have called somebody else that was on her list. I mean, people say all the time, and I'm, I'm laughing about this, but you hang out with guys a lot of times, and some of them say, God, I don't I know, I just can't. I just can't get in the action. I don't know what it is. And you see these guys say this line in the bar. They'll just walk up to some girl and say, hey, meeting you is like finding a $20 bill on the ground. And you're like wondering, <laughs> like, how is this guy ever going to get in the action? But he does it because he keeps doing it like 20, 30, 50 times. And there's always going to be one person who says, yeah, that's a smart line. I'll, I'll go out with that guy. I'll, and it's the, just the persistence of it. And those it's are the, the people who who uh, who uh, end up being with beautiful women like Max Mulligan here, who, uh, who has a beautiful wife. And, there you uh, go. And me, who's... Uh, Who's holding a microphone? Anyway, <laughs> but uh, keep going with the story. Well, so, so I got on the show. I was a wardrobe driver, and I stuck it out. And you know, I spent a year being the wardrobe driver on that show, and I I, I just studied every aspect of production. And, and the interesting thing was, you know, just being the P, I would go on the stage. I would watch the rehearsals. I would go to the AD and ask, you know, what does an AD do? I would talk to the the director. You know, I would talk to the writers. And then I I, I realized, hey, maybe I'm going to start writing some spec scripts and I started writing some spec Cosby scripts. And now how did you learn how to write a spec script? And for those of you who don't know, a spec script is something that is encouraged young writers to write in television where you take a show that's hot, like let's say a show that's, you know, maybe critically acclaimed like Louie or something that's massively like watched Seinfeld. like uh, Seinfeld back then. back then or today, uh, How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. And you write an original script around those characters, how you perceive they would be that's never been done in one of their episodes that you feel that the creator and the producers would look at and say, wow. That's a great script, and that's a great take And that's on how it. you get hired. And that's how you get hired as your as first level on the show. And most of the time, these spec scripts are used not for the show that you want to be on. They're used to get a job on another show. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I started writing spec scripts. And the funny thing that happened that year was that I was so, you know, intense on that show, just going around and meeting people and talking to people, that I guess Cosby took notice of that. And even though I had no relationship with him, he knew who I was because he was asking about me. Who's that guy who's going, this little Asian guy who's like going around and doing all this stuff. 
And uh, word got back to me that Cosby was aware of me, wanted to meet me. So I met him. Tell us about that first meeting. It was just... How know, much deodorant did you use that morning? <laughs> A lot. I was like sweating. But he brought me into his dressing room and I sat down with him and he said, you know, what are you doing? What, what are you looking to do? And, you know, I told him about what I wanted to be and all that kind of stuff. And he says, you got anything that you've written? I said, I, I gave him a couple of the Cosby scripts. And he read them and he came back. Now, and goes, which, which, by the way, was a risk that Ken did there because executive producers and high level writers do not like it when you pass a script past them and don't tell them and you hand them to the star because if the star likes them and wants to do them from that point forward, your relationship with those writers and executive producers is chilly. Uh, and you hit the nail on the head because I will tell you what happened with that because that's exactly what happened. The writers did not like Cosby. Because what would happen at the table readings, Cosby would throw the script out, and he would riff for like an hour and a half, and they would have to take his riff and make and put it into the script. Cosby was notorious for those of you who don't yeah. know in the audience, of you don't think that because you see him on television as the most huggable and lovable person in the world, but most times the people that you think are the most huggable and lovable are really really difficult, and he was a guy. There was no warm-up comic on the show that I think lasted more than a year and a half or two years. He would fire them all the time. He would go on the floor of the set when you're doing a network run-through, and he would just toss the script and say to the executive producers and the writers, listen, yeah. I'll fix this on the floor. And they'd be like, well, uh, we got a little girl here who's about five who's mm -hmm. acting with you. We got all these actors, and they're expecting the lines to do whatever. They're professionals. They'll deal with it. I'll fix it on the floor. They'll just roll with me. And, and if you notice, if you look back at reruns of Cosby, which I don't even think you can right now because nobody will air them. If, if you look back at season one, the storylines were very tight. It was Ed Weinberger was there, and it was like these comedy pros. And Ed Weinberger, and one Ed, of the greatest showrunners. One of the greatest showrunners. And, and Cosby, you know— uh, adhere to the script. It was a very structured script. And those episodes were the best. The first two seasons were the best because it had real structure. By the time you got to seasons three onwards, it just felt like it was like jazz. It was weird. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad. But it was because Cosby threw out the structure and it drove the, the writers crazy. But that's besides the point. The, the point is I gave my scripts to Cosby and he came back and he said, I want you to write a pilot for me. <laughs> like, well, I, don't, I didn't even know what a pilot was. I'm brand new to the business. And he's the subject matter, it was about a girl, an Asian girl, this Chinese girl, who grew up in a very strict Chinese family, and she was, instead of going off to Ivy League school for college, she wanted to become a model. And so I'm the guy that's going to write this. So he ends up sending me on this research trip with this model, this Asian model. She was a very pretty Chinese model that Cosby had taken under her wing, and he flies me to San Francisco, and he puts me up at this fantastic place, and I'm doing research, and he, he hooks me up with this other guy, David Henry Huang, who's a very famous playwright. Now, looking back, <laughs> do you feel like he was having a relationship with that girl? I don't, I don't know. Look, I, to me, Cosby was a great man. He he. he he got my career going, you know, and I'll tell you what, what he did for me. Obviously, we that. can understand the germs of what was happening there for yes. the future of your career. But look, I will say that, you know, on tape night, there would always be like six or seven 
beautiful models in his dressing room having dinner with him. And so, you know, and I knew he was married to Camille. You know, I would go to his house and pick up things and deliver things and stuff. And I just assumed, look, this is just part of the business. I guess this is what happens. But um, One of the most difficult things in your life, in business and your personal life, is when you're, you know, you have a friend or a business associate and you have this great relationship with them and they'll sit next to you and they'll say, hey, you know, last night oh, I had the greatest night. This girl, she was unbelievable. It's fantastic. Oh, you can't believe it. And then all of a sudden walks in five minutes later, their wife or girlfriend, yeah. they sit down and they're like, Ken, oh, so good to see you. I love this guy. Isn't he the best? Isn't this guy the best? Oh, it's just unbelievable. Don't you think he's the best? Yeah. Have you ever met anybody so great? This guy is just so wonderful. I love him so much. Give me a kiss. Yeah, all right. You know, and you're like, oh, dirty, rotten world. What do I do? It's like a drive-by shooting. Yes. I, you know, I was thinking about this because it was caused me, and you know, you hear about all this stuff all the time. It's like, you know, if guys' testosterone level was like twenty five percent less, I think we'd have a lot, few, lot less problems in the world and a lot less war and a lot less war. But anyway, so he he sent me on this 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 research trip, and uh, you know, I did this whole thing. I wrote this pilot. It was with this agency called William Morris. I said, "Who's William Morris? Is he a nice guy?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, no. It's an agency." I'm like, "What's an agency?" <laughs> And they shopped the script around. It didn't get anywhere. But what happens, it, it helps set the stage for me getting into NBC, into the executive training program. And um, actually, before I even get to that, and, and by the way, and then the writers hated me. Of course they did. The writers hated me. And I remember these, and then other writers' assistants hated me. Because all the writers' assistants were trying to become writers, and they were slaving away with the writers. And the head writer at the time was this guy named John Marcus. And this is it's, what, and this is what's difficult for Ken now. Uh, you know, he made a choice. Yeah, he didn't actually know that this was going to happen, but this is what always happens. But now he's protected. He's protected in as one way, as, but not as, another. He's as long as he wants to stay on the show, and Cosby loves him. He's there. However, it only takes one sniper to take down an army. Yeah, imagine. If you have 25 snipers trying to take you down. So there were 25 snipers, and they hated me. And so basically, I was isolated in the show. Uh, and then, and I was going to tell you this since you're a comedy manager, there was a Chris Rock incident that almost ended my career at the Cosby show before it even began. So I'll tell you this because it's, it's a funny story. So Chris Rock at the time, this was back in 89. Rock was nobody. He had just come out onto the scene as a stand-up. He had done one movie. He had done a cameo in this movie called I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. And do you remember that at all, that movie? Yes, he, I do. He played this cameo in the scene where he had to go get some soda from Jim Brown, who was running like a pizza joint, and didn't have any money. And he's like, you know, I got 10 cents on me. How about put it in my hand? I'll drink it out of my hand. I think Jim that Brown was, was like, Keenan Ivory Wayman's Wayne, first movie, wasn't it? Or yes. And so, but we knew him on the, the the comedy circuit because he was like the hot. He was like getting really hot on the comedy circuit. People were stealing his material, and and we all knew it was very blue material. And he, you know, but he was brilliant. And so what happened was one tape night, Rock revered Cosby, and he snuck into the studio, like nobody knows who Chris Rock is. He sneaks into the studio, 
And I'm looking over and I see there's Chris Rock. And I'm like, talk, talk to the other PAs. I'm like, that's Chris Rock. That's Chris Rock. He's like this great comedian. He's this young hot comedian. And it so happened that night at tape night, the warm-up comedian, I think it was like Sinbad or somebody, got sick. We had no warm-up person. So the AP, Nancy Haas, comes to me, is going around going, oh Nancy Haas, I work with on Whitney. Yeah, so, she, so Nancy producer. Haas is like freaking out. There's no warm-up audience, the warm-up comedian. And so, and the thing you have to know about the Cosby shows, they bus in church people. Okay, this it's like a G-rated show. It's all like elderly and young kids from the church, and you know they come in and and she's like, "What are we going to do about a warm-up comedian?" I said, "There's there's this guy Chris Rockover. He's really really great." She goes, "Does he work clean?" And so I said, "Let me go check." And I go to Chris Rock. I said, "I know who you are. You're Chris Rock." He's like, "Yeah." I said, "Would you like to do some warm-up tonight?" And he's like, "Yeah, I want. Yeah, I want to do some warm-up. I want to do some warm-up." I said, "But Chris, you got to do clean material. Like this is church groups here. Can you do clean?" "Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do clean material. I'll do clean. Don't worry, I'll do clean material." <laughs> so I go to Nancy. I'm like, "Okay, he's gonna do. He says he's gonna do clean material." She's like, "All right, let's let's try him out." So they trot him out on stage. I'm standing right next to Nancy Haas. Chris Rock's first joke. <laughs> He goes, so I'm walking down the street. Some woman comes up to me and says, honey, for 50 bucks, I'll do anything you want. He said, bitch, paint my house. (laughs) And so you look at the audience and it's like dead silence. And like their mouths are open up. His second joke is like, Miles Davis. Miles Davis is black. Miles Davis is so black, he can go to a funeral buck naked. (laughs) Like, you could hear a pin drop in the audience. Nancy Haas looks at me like she's going to fucking kill me. She walks out, grabs Chris Reich by my arm, yanks him off the stage. And I almost got my ass fired. I came this close. She's like, I'm going to fucking fire you, blah, blah, blah. You're in so much trouble. Luckily, I get to keep my job. Four or five years ago, I run into Chris Rock at this industry party. He doesn't know who the fuck I am. So I go up to Chris. I say, hey, Chris, let me ask you something. Do you remember this incident? It was like 20-something years ago. He goes, yeah, I tell him the whole story. And I said, you almost got me fired. You almost killed my career before it started. And he looks at me. He goes, yeah, Ken. Well, I guess both our careers kind of worked out, didn't it? (laughs) Sounds like my Chris Rock story, but anyway. So after, so after I, I, I give these these scripts to Cosby, and he has me write this the script. It doesn't go anywhere, but the, the season ends, and I find out about this um, executive tr- trainee program at NBC. It was like called the Associates Program. A lot of famous people had gone through that program. It was like a junior executive program, and so I called Cosby up. I said, "This is my one ask." So I call Cosby up and I said, you know, Mr. Cosby, can you call up somebody at NBC and see if you can get me an interview for the associates program? And I'm in the office with him. He goes, get me Brandon Tartikoff. And Brandon, Brandon Tartikoff at the time was the president of the network. He's the a young, legendary. The youngest president in network history. Youngest president in network history. Legendary guy. And he, he says to, to Brandon, he goes, I want you to interview this kid for the associates program. I really believe in him. He's a really good guy and he's really smart. And so Tartikoff brings me in from the end. And this was at the height of Cosby's power, right? So he, he's like the 800-pound guy in the room. And so I prepare really well for this, the interview. You know, Tartikoff interviews me. And, and next thing you know, I become the you know, in, executive at NBC. Now the writers are freaking out because I've gone from PA wardrobe driver <laughs> to an executive at NBC within the span of like nine months. And word gets back to me that John Marcus, who's the head of the writers group, 
says in the room with the other writer, he goes, I promise you, I will never take a meeting with Ken Mock. <laughs> and that gets back to, and sure enough, later on when I go to ABC Comedy Development, he comes in and takes a meeting. Did and you I, buy his project? No. <laughs> Would you have bought it if it was extraordinary? Um... <laughs> That's a good question. I, I think I would have because I think I'm a very practical guy. <laughs> then why did it take you so long to answer? I, I was thinking about it. I was just, I, I'm trying to be honest with myself. Oh, but anyway. Shit. And then the, then the funny thing was so on the show, when I was the wardrobe driver, I worked for Dancy Haas and Terry Garnieri and a woman named Marilyn Longcar. So the next year I go to NBC, I'm the associate. And they were short of executives at the time. So I got more on my plate than a normal associate does. I was in the current department. Explain to our audience what current department means. Okay, so what happens when this you work at the network? This is very profound here. There's two areas. One's called current and one's called development. Development is a hot job. Everybody wants to be in development. They want to develop the comedies. In current, you're kind of like an administrator. Like you, you, you oversee the shows that are on the air and you're the network liaison between the network and the show. And you give notes to the executive producer about what you think the show should be, how we should change it, like, you you know, just to make sure the client, which is NBC, is happy. So I get put in charge of this. One of the shows I was put in charge of was a show called Amen with Sherman Helmsley. <laughs> and I show up on the set the first day, and I'm there. And who's the producer there? Marilyn Longcar. So Marilyn Longcar now reports to me. <laughs> so I worked for her like nine months before as her wardrobe PA, and the next season, she reported to me. It was a very, very weird thing, and it just Holy shows you, shit yeah, it just shows you how the business, you know, you know. One day the assistant's working for you, the next day the the the, the kid is a the network exec, and that happens all the time. Barry can attest to this. We can all attest to this. It happens remarkably fast. When I was, you know, an executive at at, at NBC, and I was in charge of like, like Golden Girls, Steve McPherson was the driver of Tony Thomas at the time. And I would talk to Steve and Steve was like this eager young guy and he drove Tony Thomas around the line. Then he, you know, he ended up becoming the, the president, president of, of ABC Disney, ABC. And one, and one of the great guests here on industry. Standard. Absolutely. So that that's really what got me going at the time that my big break was Cosby mentored me and, and got me into NBC. And, and that, that's how I got going from NBC onwards. Awesome. So what's next? So I was at NBC and uh, I was there for like, you know, four years and got sent up to Montreal and went to the, all the comedy clubs and met you and all these other great managers. And Tell me some of the shows that you developed or were working on or were developed while you were there that you thought were going to be great and became great and those that you thought were going to be <laughs> shitty and became great anyway. Well, I, I'll tell you the, the show that was great that I was in charge of the very first year was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with this kid named Will Smith. And this guy, Benny Medina, was managing him with Jeff Pollock. And the late he was, Jeff Pollock. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just remember working with Will that first year, and he was just this young kid out of Philly and, you know, and, uh, you know, it was exciting that you knew this kid was going to be a big, big, big star, you know, off that show. And, uh, never acted before in his never life. Never acted before. You know. In your opinion, as a network executive, how do you explain that somebody can come off the streets of Philadelphia and walk onto a set and be able to act and compete with all the other people? You know, it's it's. I'll ask you the same question. You know it when you see it, right? 
there are those special people that walk in and immediately they just captivate you and you just see it. He has all the qualities and you just saw that with Will. You knew that from day one, he was just going to be this huge colossal star and Andy and Susan Borowitz were the showrunners there. And, uh, you know, it was just very, very evident. So, I mean, I think that was the highlight for me at NBC that I was in charge of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when it first came on the air. Now tell me the show that you saw that you thought, oh, this show doesn't have a chance in hell of becoming a hit. And it became a hit. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a show that I just knew was not going to happen. And it was a star, a guy that I really, you know, everybody really respected. It was James Garner. It was called Man of the People. And it was a one-camera film show. And I can't remember the name. of the, It was like Steve Israel, I think, was in charge of that show. And I remember talking to Steve. And he was very high on the show. It was, it was done in a very unusual way. And it, we made a bet. We we said if it if it gets a certain rating in its premiere, I will literally kiss your ass in front of the cast and crew on table read day. And of course, he was rel- he was like relishing. I want to have a network executive kiss my ass in front of the cast and crew. And it premiered, and it it didn't hit. Tanked. And the show went off the air like very shortly after that. You should have you should have had him kiss your ass. Exactly. Okay, so you move on to ABC. So, so I moved to ABC and I Why start, do you move to ABC when you're doing so well at NBC? Everybody wants to go from current to development. You know, that that's the path, right? So you were current for four years at NBC and ABC offered you a development position. Yeah, so I went over to, to develop comedies with- Who was the president then? The president was Ted Harbert. Ted Harbert is now the chairman of NBC Universal, who's going to be a guest on this show soon. Oh, that's great. And uh, Stu Bloomberg was running comedy development. and One of the greatest uh, network programmers of his time. Yes. And then I worked with a woman named Kim Fleary. Who's amazing, who yeah. I just spoke to. Yeah, she's great. And, uh, you know, I, the, the one show that I ended up developing there that I was really proud of that didn't go anywhere was, uh, was uh, All American Girl with, with Margaret Cho. And that didn't that didn't go. Now I remember when this show came out, and I love Margaret Show. Yeah. And one of the things that you cannot control is the media. Yeah. And I remember I was in New York, and I was so excited to see the show, and the New York Daily News or the New York Post, one of these sensationalist papers. Right. The entertainment section you open it up and the front page the night of the show is going to be on i'll never forget this and it was so depressing all american hurl (laughs) yeah you know i'll tell you and i love that show yeah well you know the show just did not work out the way it should have because it was a very sanitized version of margaret and you know margaret she is not by any means a person that you can sanitize they didn't let her be who she was and Frankly, if she was who she was, it would not work on ABC because ABC was like the family-oriented network at that time. It was like, uh, you know, wrote well, not Roseanne, but Roseanne and, uh, you know, Home Improvement. And there were all these like very family 8 o'clock shows. I just remember that that was just a ship that was slowly sinking and, you know, the auspices didn't really get her. It was a Whit Thomas production. The ABC wanted it to be safe and— it was just it was just all wrong, so it, it just failed. And so I'm really interested to need, see how this new FOB show does uh, with Eddie Wong. It's only been 20 years since we had another crack at it. Yeah, know? and you know, as an Asian American guy, I'm like I'm thrilled that that's happening. I remember the casting of All American Girl. Uh, God, I hope I get this right. 
that was because there were so few extraordinary great female Asian actors yeah. and actresses, if I'm not mistaken, the person who played her grandmother in the show or her mother, whatever, was somebody, this great actress, but she was like... Two years older than her. Yeah, she was yeah. like two years older than her, made up to be older. Yeah, yeah. Her name was Jody Long, great actress. She's she's the working actress. She still works a lot. And yeah, and then, um, yeah, it was just weird. Um, so that didn't work out. But, you know, while I was there, I developed the Drew, the Drew Carey show. I developed Spin City with Michael J. Fox, you know, a few others. I developed a, this uh, show with Tia Leone that was really, really funny. Um, but, you know, I really realized that, you know, working at the network, like I found it really, really unsatisfying because I'm a guy who really wants to be really closer to the creative process. You know, I really want to be hands on. And when you're at the network level, you, you really kind of remove from that, you know, you give the notes once the draft is there and all that sort of stuff is done so you can shape it. But, but you're not really in the trenches with the producers and the writers doing what you want to do. And I, I just, I did, I was very unhappy being a network because I want to go out and become my own producer. So, you know, after a few years there, I, I decided that, uh, I'm going to move on and I, I want to run a production company. And so there was an opening for MTV productions with, with Van Toffler. Who's now the chairman overseeing all of MTV, I believe in the uh, yes. Viacom and, and with he, Doug Herzog. With Doug Herzog. And he's, you know, Van's one of the great guys. He started off as an attorney at the company. Yes. But really cool guy, very open-minded, you know. And so he let me run MTV Productions. I came over. And my job was to take MTV talent like Jenny McCarthy and a bunch of these people and graduate them onto network TV. And so I went over there and, you know, I, I, I developed the Jenny McCarthy sitcom that was over at NBC and a couple other things. And I got a few shows on UPN, you know, at the, at the start of its infancy. And, uh, but what happened was I was a small production arm at MTV. And so they didn't give me a big development budget. And at that time, and Barry, you can explain this to your listeners, it was the it was the, the land of development deals where people were going to overall deals. If you could pick up a pen and write your name, you got $2 million a year as a writer. And so every writer was getting put in these, these massive overall deals. It was like insane. It was like the real estate bubble. And MTV at the time, the problem was is that they always operated their business. It started off with music videos, and they were so successful not paying anything for music videos. Right. The music companies would produce the videos. They'd spend all the money, and they'd just hand them the, uh, at that time, the three-quarter-inch tape. And that was it. They paid for a VJ. They paid minimum yep. wage for their VJs, and that was it. So they weren't used to spending money. So when it came time to giving out all this money for all these people, they were the, the, the people that you could get to run your shows in MTV were people who couldn't get jobs at the other places. Exactly. So like I only had like a few hundred thousand dollars in my development fund that I could do sizzle reels or whatever. You know, this was, you know, way back when. And I realized I, I was not going to get any development done. There, there's no way I could develop. So I had to think. I had a very small team of like three people. I'm like, what can I do to get development going? And I just remember at that time, you know, Buna Murray was the big reality people, right? But they had only gotten shows on MTV. It was like real world and road rules and that sort of thing. And uh, I was based in LA and I flew to New York one time for a meeting with Van. And we're trying to have the meeting. 
And every three, two minutes, every 30 seconds, there were these huge screams coming from the street. I'm like, what is going on? And I look out the street. There's literally like 5,000 people in Times Square. And I'm like, what are these 5,000 people here for? And they're like, oh, they're here for the Backstreet Boys. And they were appearing on, you know, whatever, MTV Live or whatever that show was at that time. And I said, who are they? And I said, oh, they're, they're a, a boy band. And so I went to my office and I sat down and I was like, you know what? I've got no money for development. I have a skill set because I used to be a news producer. I used to work at CNN and I used to write three or four pieces for the nightly news every night, packages, voiceovers, whatever it was. I had a skill set as a writer. I could write, I could produce, I could edit. And the skill set you have as a news producer translates perfectly to reality. And reality was at its infancy in that point. So I said, I'm going to do this, a show called Making the Band. I'm going to create our own boy band and I'm going to find a, the guy who created NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, a guy named Luke Perlman and I'm going to get him to create a boy band for us and we're going to go around the country, we're going to audition kids and we're going to form a boy band and I pitched it to Van, he's like alright, go ahead and do it I got Luke Perlman to, to sign this contract and you did a sizzle reel for him we didn't even do a sizzle reel This was a, so you shot the, the pilot we shot the, there, were, there were no T- reality TV shows on the on, on broadcast network. How ever. much money did he give you to make the pilot? I got a series order. You got a series order I from pitched, going in his office. And yeah, pitching. no, no, no. I, it was it was for ABC. So I, we went and pitched this show. I took Lou Perlman with me. We went to ABC and Fox and NBC, and Fox and ABC wanted to do the series. This is the, the I had time. thought MTV passed, and that's when you went to ABC. I'm wrong. No, it, w- it was the other way around. I was supposed to take MTV product and bring it to the networks. Yeah, but I thought, what you know, they had the first option of doing it there. No, they, okay. at that time, they were like, go to ABC. And then it came back to, uh, to MTV. I know, that's why I was... So we pitched it to uh, Fox, and we pitched it to ABC, and both of them are fighting for it. And Doug Herzog was the, the, the head of Fox at the time. They really wanted it. And then ABC really wanted it. And I said, look, we're going to go to ABC because ABC is Disney. And boy band Disney, they have Disneyland. They have all these ancillaries that work well for a boy band. And I, I ended up bringing it to ABC. And then Doug Herzog talked to Van Toffler and said, Ken Ma can never come pitch to me again. <laughs> <laughs> this seems to be the running theme of the your running career. running theme of my career. And so uh, we ended up producing it for ABC, and it you know became a hit. And we premiered the same week, like we were the first network reality show on broadcast television in the same week that Survivor was premiering. So me and Mark Burnett were the first people to get a unscripted series on the air on a broadcast network. And those are the days where you could go in a room, pitch an idea. You didn't have to have a sizzle reel. You didn't have to have anything. And they would give you a series order because it was so cheap to do reality at that time that they, it was no risk for them. What was your budget per episode for the series? For a half hour, it was like four seventy-five. $475,000. They didn't even argue. The business affairs didn't, yeah, whatever you want. Yeah, four seventy-five, <laughs> no problem. We were like, I looked at John Murray and I was should like, I, should we should have ask? asked for seven, <laughs> you know? And they would have said yes. And, and so that got me on my producing career and that, I learned how to produce reality from John Murray because at that time I didn't know how to produce unscripted. So I said, we're going to bring Buna Murray into this. And I- He's an amazing man and another great guest Amazing on the show. guy. Mary Ellis and John, I learned as everybody in this business has in the unscripted world, we all came from the loins of John and Mary Ellis. All the, of us. The late Mary Ellis. The late Mary Ellis. And we all learned how to produce from them. And so they have spread their their seeds all across this landscape of, of reality, and we all come from them. So I always owe John and Mary also a great debt 
of gratitude for that. And, and that's what got me going on my producing career. And so uh, making the band, you did that for, was it one or two seasons on ABC? And we it, did it for like two seasons on ABC. Then we brought it over to back to MTV. And it was there for how long? <laughs> Six years. It was like, a, and it was with Puffy. So 10 years on that show. I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't. I, I left after that. You yeah. might have left. Yeah. But you still participated. Well, what what happened was. Financially. Uh, no. No. I I you created a, the show. I was an executive there. Oh, Right. So then what happened was, and this was really the low point of my career, Barry. Ouch. I will tell you the low point of my career. Is I, then I created a, another unscripted show, and it was called uh, Tough Enough. And it was a show about the making of a WWE wrestler. And I said, won't that be fascinating, right, how to do that? So we had this training camp in Stanford right by WWE headquarters, and we brought these kids in who all wanted to be wrestlers, and we put them through the whole routine, and it was really brutal. Like they'd have to go in the ring and do bumps and bumps and bumps and get knocked down, and basically the trainers would torture them. And then the, the, the person who graduated from that would end up becoming getting a contract with the WWE. And uh, that show became a hit, and it was airing on MTV. And what had happened was, I don't, at that point, I didn't deal with authority well. And so I was working with an executive there from MTV who remained nameless, but he was not a great guy by any stretch of the imagination. And um, he was really difficult. And uh, in the first season of the show, we were, we had to both serve as judges on the panel. So he represented the network, I represented the production company. And... We did not like each other at all. And what exacerbated it was, I was going out with somebody at that time from MTV that he had tried to date and she turned him away. So now there's this extra resentment towards him from him, to meet from him. <laughs> he actually got into a fist fight on camera on the show. Over what? Choosing a cast member to go in the show and he was just he just wouldn't have it with this guy everybody wanted him the WD wanted him and he's just putting his foot down just being arbitrary and like no did you put that in the show no I, I took that tape and I destroyed it well needless to say now the show goes on the air I used to get my shows onto ABC and UPN so I didn't have to report to this guy now that it was on MTV I had to report to him so right after that I'm walking to my car I get a call from my lawyer <laughs> Um, you want the good news or the bad news, Ken? I'm like, what's the good news? Oh, they're picking up uh, Tough Enough for another season. What's the bad news? You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> this guy wants you out of your office right now. And they're going to put you, we're going to put you into an overall. I, this was when I, I converted my deal into an overall deal. I did a three-year overall. And I had this beautiful corner office. It was like this size. It was like, you know, it was fantastic and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm like, well, they got to give me an office and an assistant. And, oh, yeah, okay, you'll get an office assistant. They take me, and they put me into an editing bay, which was literally 10 foot by 10 foot, <laughs> in the middle of the Osbournes, <laughs> in this shitty office complex. So you went from the corner office yeah. to an editing bay in the yeah. middle of the Osbournes. So. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody in the Osbournes is like going... What, who the fuck is this guy stuck in this editing bay in the middle of our production? And I'm like, well, I need an assistant. No, we're not going to give you one. Well, in my contract, I get one. So I had to hire my friend. This guy, John Schneider, was a fledgling actor. Does he get a desk? No, fuck you. Hang up the phone. 
So he had to work with me in this 10 foot by 10 foot <laughs> office. We went to like Anawalt Lumber. We got like a, a, a like a platform. We put it on top of a file cabinet. I had a desk. We were both crammed in there. I'd be like, I'd call the network, then the people. I'm like, can I get some paper supplies? Fuck you. Hang the phone up. <laughs> you know, can I do this? Fuck you. Hang up the phone. I mean, they just, they were torturing me. They hated me. And then I hear back, <laughs> again, this report gets back to the Cosby show. This guy says in a meeting to everybody on the floor, it was a first look. Anything Ken Mock pitches me, I am going to turn down. I don't care how good it is. No matter what, I'm going to turn it down. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm just like in really, I'm just on the floor. And I'm like, my career is like effing over. And then my agent says, hey, I want you to meet with this woman, Tyra Banks. You know, Tyra Banks, the supermodel. She has this idea to do this modeling show. She wants to do the making a model. And you're the guy that does these aspirational shows. So I meet with Tyra. We hit it off right away. And I said, I'm going to develop this format for you. I developed the format for her. I show it to her. She's like, it's brilliant. Let's go out. And then I realized, oh, this guy is going to turn down everything I do. So what I did was leading up to that pitch, we we're going to go out to the networks. I kept on sending him pitches. Like I would make up a pitch. Uh, this show is about a pig who's like a talking pig and uh, blah, blah, blah. And this show is about a duck or this show is about a trash collector. And I would email it to him and I would CC my lawyer, my agent, and he would come back and say, no, no, no. So now he's primed because I'm pitching him really bad ideas. So now I'm just like, I want to do a show about models. CC my lawyer, my agent. He comes back and says, no, we're not interested. Thank you. So we go out to the network. Very smart. And what he's saying is he has a first look deal there. Yes. So what he's showing you is he tactically did was sent them shitty stuff and put this one in the middle of all the shitty stuff. <laughs> so he'd say no. And then there was a legal record that he said no. And that way, when he went to another network, he would be free and clear and they couldn't come back to him. Right. And so, you know, we go out and we and we pitch the show. And, you know, I, I did a very legitimate pitch to this guy at MTV. I wrote out the whole details. This is what the show is, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, he came back and said, screw you. I'm not doing the show. Everybody wants this show. We decide we're going to do it with UPN because the bar is so low for ratings that we know that if we do just do a halfway decent number, we'll stay on the air. As Byron Allen so eloquently said on this podcast, he does his shows and they get a one rating. And he says, you know what that means, everybody? That means 99 out of 100 people aren't watching, and I'm a millionaire. Exactly. So we sell this show. The guy at MTV finds out and freaks out. So now what he does is he calls Tyra's agent, and she tells the agent. He tells the agent, he says, Tell Tyra not to do the show with Ken. Ken is an asshole. And he's incompetent. He's terrible. He'll ruin the show. So the agent says this to Tyra. He says, you've got to get rid of Ken. We sold the show, but get rid of Ken and bring somebody else on. I got a ton of other people here on my list that I can give to you. And the reason why the agent was open to doing that is what agency was Tyra Banks with? Okay. We're not going to talk about that right now. Okay. Right. No, 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 no. We don't have. We, we leave that. This is all unnamed. Okay. We we don't have to name agencies. We won't name agencies. Okay. What I'll just say is this. <laughs> this is what I'll say. Is that there's a conflict of interest at the agencies, and I don't care what agency Ken was at or what agent Tyra Banks was at. 
But the thing is, if you're not at the same agency with the people you're pitching with and you're doing things with, there's two forces working. Your agent wants things with their agency and they want to hire showrunners from their agency so they can package it and get their package fee, which can help net them millions and millions of dollars. If you're in a situation where the talent you're aligning with is with another agency, you always have to look over your shoulder and over your back because they want to get their people in. When you're in there, that's taking up a slot that one of their people can get in and they can get the package and they can get make millions of dollars. Instead of Tyra's agency got a half package and Ken's agency got a half package. And what that means is they split the uh, license fee, the 10% of the license fee and the 3%. We'll, we can get into that later or you can look it up because I don't, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to bore you guys. And that's what he was going through. Tyra wasn't with his agency, and that made it easier for that agent to try to take him out. Right. And so Tyra listens to th- this whole thing about me. Oh, he's incompetent. He's a jerk. He's uh, you know, difficult to get along. It was like all lies that were just made up so that he could get me out. And Tyra says, I don't find that the case with Ken at all. I like him. I mean, he's, he's the opposite of how you're describing him. I'm going to stick with him. Nice. And so we end up becoming partners and doing the show and... You know, we become very close friends. Like, you know, she's the godmother to my kids now, blah, blah, blah. And then sure enough, like after that, that guy was let go from MTV for reasons I will not disclose. Um, and then, uh, and so that became, you know, my big, big show, like, you know, uh, Top Model. And we've been going on for 12 years now. We are in our 22nd cycle. And that launched the platform for other you know, unscripted shows that I did. And then um, I had the good fortune of hooking up with you uh, for the Dane Cook show. And you talked about that. That was a very disappointing pilot for me because I love Dane Cook. I mean, I had been a fan of Dane's for such a long time. You knew that, Barry. And I kept on talking about Dane. I kept on saying, why won't they never do? Well, he's got this massive tour and he's making zillions of dollars. I'm like, look, we got to get him into TV. And I wanted to do this thing with, with Dane where we were like 10 years ahead of our time, basically, or seven years ahead of our time. I wanted to shoot it like, you know, Modern Family or The Office, right? Where it was like reality and people would be sit down in interviews. And, and that's the way I pitched it to CW at the time to Kim. And I said, I want to do it like handheld camera. Kim Fleary. Yeah. I want to do it kind of like reality, but it's scripted. It's almost like do it like Curb. But this time you're having people sit down and do interviews. So it looks like a reality. And like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do it. But then all of a sudden, you know, the writer came on. He was from France. He didn't really understand that world because nobody was doing that at the time. Nobody did it until the office and in Modern Family. Now everybody, in community, everybody does it now. That's what I wanted to do. And I knew if we had done it that way, we would have had a big, big hit show. But Michael wasn't comfortable with that, and he didn't know how to do that. Even though I would tell him, I would walk him through. He didn't trust me enough to do that. And John Weitzel, great comedy director, but he didn't know how to do that either. You really would have to pull somebody from the reality world to do that. And so then it ended up becoming this mishmash. Everybody had their opinion and it became nothing. And I knew as we were shooting, I was like, you know, this is not going to work because we got close, but it's not going to work because we're just going away from what the, the original concept they bought from me. They shied away from like as we're going through the process and I kept on trying to say Kim let's do this let's do this she goes no I don't think we're comfortable with that and I don't think the network's going to want to do that and I don't blame them at the time because we were ahead of the curve there at the at the time and um 
you know, the, 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 the pilot came out as good as it could, but it just didn't fly. And that really disappointed me because Dane is a huge, huge star and he's so talented. I mean, amazingly talented guy. And it's proven by his track record yeah. out there. Right. And he 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 did have a great ability on the set to create those moments. Unbelievable. You know, he He's a really did. good actor. Always did. He always was great. And, you know, I think people saw that in Mr. Brooks and yeah. a dramatic role, too. And I still think he's got, like, I still think Dane's going to really kind of still break through in the in the feature world. I, he's took a couple, maybe a couple missteps here and there. But I really think if he's patient, he's really still going to make a mark there. Um, you have to be and you have to believe in yourself. If you look at somebody like Zach Galifianakis, you can't, yeah. can't even count the number of things he did before he got that role that was right for him. Yeah. So we met at my former company yes. in this uh, 40,000 square foot facility. Yeah. So I, I, I went over. You, you invited me over. Me and my my colleague Paul Basimi, and we went over and you, you, we go to Burbank and there's this huge place, so impressive. And you're showing me all around. It's forty thousand square feet. It's, it's basically like this big soundstage where they built offices out. And we got this over here, and we got a commissary here, and we got baba and lattes. And I was like, what? And it's like then we run into what's his name who used to run Saved by the Bell and was doing Last Comic Standing. Peter, Peter Engel. Peter Engel was right by your office, and he yeah. was setting up his offices that day. Yeah. And we've got editing stations here and post, and it's a one-stop shop. And he's like, if you ever, <laughs> it was like, if you need space and you need production space, come on over. We'll do it. And I'm like, wow. And I, I go back and I talk to Paul. I'm like, we got to do this on the, on the LA side because this is in Burbank. I'm not going to Burbank. It's impressive. So we created our own version. We created Lot 5. And I said, we're going to take a risk. I did this with my partner, George. We initially signed up 25,000 square feet because- Here's the thing, and you know this, Barry. We all know this. When you're a TV producer or film producer and you get a series order, you don't know if the show is going to last one episode or go five years or go 10 years. And so when you start up a TV, a production, it's like you're starting up a company, right? You got to get lease. You got to get equipment. You got to get copiers. You got to get desks. You got to get computers. It's like you're starting up a company. And we would have like three or four shows on at the same time, but we could not get leases because everybody wants a long-term lease. You can't do a long-term lease. So you're always looking for short-term space. So I would be going to like three different physical locations to oversee my shows. I was like, this is insane. So I said, why don't we just rent, bite the bullet, take a risk. We'll rent 25,000 square feet of space. So we'll always have space to produce. And when we're not producing, we'll rent it out to other producers because if I'm looking for space, Barry's looking for space, Every TV producer, comedy and drama are all looking for space. And we'll make it one-stop shopping where we'll give you the desk, we'll give you the copier, we'll give you the phone, we'll give you the offline, we'll give you the online, we'll give you the mixing. And we did that, and now we've grown from 25,000 square feet to 40,000 square feet. We've got like 14 different production companies in our building. We've got films in our building. We've got TV series. We've got scripted. We've got unscripted. And it was from that initial meeting with you, Barry, that I got the idea to do that. I said, I got to bite the bullet and do that now. Wow. I never knew so that. So I have to thank you. Wow. That is the truth. That's amazing. You know, what's interesting is you're doing it. Yeah. You're in a very challenging time now, yes. as is the former company that I was with, because, you know, when you go to the comedy cellar and you run into Louis C.K. and he's sitting in a booth with his MacBook Pro, and I'm like, what are you doing, Louis? And he's like, oh, I'm editing my show. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, what are you doing over here? Yeah, I'm making the uh, opening credits here. 
Uh, what's over here? Oh, that's the music. I'm going to add the music in here and do it. And so it's like here, uh, if these companies and like your company who is in this world sees the world changing and they're like, oh my God, what do I, what do I do? Am I going to continue with this with all these avids and editing bays knowing that people are delivering shows yeah. with their computer or how am I going to, how am I going to make this transition? And it's a, you know, it's a dangerous time when you have 40,000 square feet. Yeah, but everybody needs a space to work in. That's the case. And we have everything from Avids to MacBook Pros to every kind of format that you, you could use. And our, our offices have been full from day one. And we're just expecting because – and the greatest thing is you don't have to sign a lease. You can come in for a week. You can come in for three weeks. You can come in for three months, five years. doesn't matter. Well, I can't wait to come and have office space with you in between one of your productions in a 10 by 10 space and say, could I have an assistant and have you say, fuck you and hang up the phone on me. And, and that's why my company's called 10 by 10 Entertainment. If you ever look at the animation of my logo, it's a guy bouncing around this room and then it forms 10 by 10. That's the biggest inside joke. And so whenever I look at that logo, I think about where I started. My office that I got stuck in was a 10-foot by 10-foot office <laughs> in the middle of the Osbournes. That was my first office. And it always keeps me grounded. That's so it's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'd like to do a little uh, word association with you. I'm going to mention yeah. a name. Okay. Because, you know, I don't want to keep you here forever because that would be dangerous. <laughs> and... I'm just going to mention something and tell me any kind of little thing or something that comes to your mind that, the, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. Will Smith. Um, incredibly talented, incredibly smart guy. Like the guy has a, probably has a genius IQ. Um, and I think he, he, he's very, he kind of puts that off. He doesn't, really kind of go to it but he's super smart and you know I, I think in the beginning when I first started working with him, he didn't want really people to know that because it kind of hurt his street cred because you know he was this guy who was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air blah 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 it's like it doesn't really add points to you to be like super smart so he, he never really went there but th that's the thing you have to know about Will very very smart guy and a great partner with in James Lasseter who I you know was just like again a fresh-faced kid and you now know, a guy who runs friend. Overbrook Entertainment. And now he runs Overbrook Entertainment. And those guys got it down. The way they analyze the market, what films to do, they're, they're very analytical about it. And uh, look, obviously he's managed his career and James Lam managed his career remarkably well. So more power to him. Jenny McCarthy. Again, really, really super talented you know, person. Again, I'm really surprised, like her and Dane Cook, never really like hit it big uh, you know, on the you know, on the television series circuit, but it just goes to show whenever you do a TV, you know, series or a film, all the pieces have to fit together perfectly. You can't only just have great talent. You have to have a, the right writer with the right sensibility and the director that has the right sensibility and the production. All of those things have to fit. And it's almost a miracle when it does. I'm amazed that, you know, at what works and what doesn't, but it all has to almost be like kismet, and it just didn't never happen with Jenny on that side. But, you know, she should have really been 10 times bigger than she is now. But, again, really talented gal. Margaret Cho. Fantastically funny person. Just um, charismatic, just so interesting all the time. Great, like, as you said, 
you don't know what direction she's going to go in, but she has a point of view. She has attitude, and she's just just naturally funny all the time. Uh, remarkably talented girl, Drew Carey. Again, really, really, like you know, you know. Look, I think that the common theme that comes here is like you know, the cream rises to the top, and you can spot it a mile away, Barry. You are so much more attuned to this than we are. You find them even before we get to them. We see them after you guys have scooped them up and got them to us. But yeah, just again, really talented guy. Michael J. Fox. Well, Michael J. Fox, again, not only a, a, a talented Because person, a guy who started off number five on the call sheet. Yeah. You know, the fifth lead in the show out of six people. Yeah. And became the star. And you were there when you saw it the happen. cream rises to the top. And not only a, a great talent, but a, a very nice person. You know, really is one of the good guys in the business. Robert De Niro. Can't tell you much about Robert De Niro, only that I, he's a great actor. You know, this Joy movie is something that, you know, I set up at Fox and developed the script for a couple of years and, you know, got everything set. And then when David O. Russell came in, that's his phase of the project. So, you know, don't complicate winning, right? Isn't that a famous saying of yours? Don't yes. complicate winning. Don't complicate winning. <laughs> <laughs> Cosby. Well... Um, you know, that's a tough one, Barry. Uh, and I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I'm just so confused right now. I mean, you know, he, he was great for me. He was such a wonderful mentor to me. I don't even think he remembers me because I, I will tell you, he was a guy that when I knew him, he would help so many people out just, f just for the fun of it. He was just a guy who really enjoyed giving gifts to people or helping them and, you know, but then again, I was not a beautiful blonde model, right? So I wasn't subject to the things that he's, people are alleging that he's, he's done. All I can tell you that to me, he, he was incredibly generous and that, that's all I can say about that. Awesome. Tyra Banks. Great friend, great partner. Uh, one of the most, Probably the hardest working person you're ever going to come off. Incredibly ambitious. You know, I, I don't know where ambition comes from with people. I don't know what drove you, Barry, or, you know, how would you say, well, why are you so ambitious? I think it's just something that's inside of you. And I think with Tyra Banks, it burns inside of her. Uh, really super ambitious. Incredibly hardworking. The woman never stops. Very, very smart. She ended up going to the Harvard Professional Business School late in life, like only a few years ago. She graduated like two years ago with a Harvard business degree. This is when we didn't go to college. And she got into the Harvard professional school. And this is how dedicated she is. She hired tutors before she went to Harvard to get her up to speed on accounting, uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics, um, all like finance. So when she went in, she was basically blowing the other students away. In her her professors, they were like so impressed with her. They were like, I can't believe how like focused and laser focused you're on on this stuff and how smart you were. It's because she prepares. I mean, you would never have guessed that about her before you met her. You just think, oh, she's just like, you know, the silly model. And when I, when I first started doing top model, I really thought it was a vanity title for her, right? She wouldn't do anything. She was in there all the time. 
up till this very day. And she learned everything about the, uh, about being a producer and and uh, and learning how to produce segments and editing and all that kind of stuff by just sticking her nose in it. And she's a f- fully three hundred sixty degree producer now. Speaking of holy shit moments, tell yeah. us one story from America's Top Model. You don't have to mention names. Just tell us one thing that would be the highlight chapter of your book that no one would ever believe you experienced in your 22 cycles of that show. Something that happened that you just were like, I cannot believe what I've just seen. (laughs) It's not a positive story. (laughs) Again, it was another one of those stories where my career almost ended before began <laughs> or we were in Japan and we were what happens with top models we shoot everything in LA until like the last five episodes and then you go to a foreign country and then we finish the the show in the foreign country so we've gone to Italy and Greece and you know London and Paris and everywhere in the world it's been an amazing run and so one year we went to Tokyo what happens when you go to Tokyo you have to hire what's called a, a, a fixer in Tokyo, you have to get a local crew there to work with us, right? Because they know the, the marketplace, they know the vendors, everything. And we hired this guy who was like an expat there. And um, he turned out to be very sketchy. And basically, we forwarded him like ungodly amount of money to start production. Like, like okay, you hire your, your staff, your crew, and blah, blah, blah. Basically, what that guy did was he pocketed all the money. So when we got to Japan... The crew had not been paid for like three weeks, and he was blaming it on us. He was saying, oh, you're not getting paid because they're not giving you the money. So we end up talking to this guy. and like, what are you doing? He's like, well, you got to just give me more money, and I'll pay him. I said, no, no, no. What happened to the X hundreds of thousands of dollars that we gave you? He goes, oh, that's gone. And so um, the crew comes to us, and so basically what happened was I said, look, I don't know what this guy is telling you, but he's screwing you. Like what we want to do is we want to cut him out now. We want to deal directly with you. We'll pay you all your back wages. We'll pay you your present wages now. And we did that. And they believed us. They knew, oh, we were telling the truth. And this guy was like a scumbag. That guy got really pissed off. And he hired the Yakuza to try to take us out. Now, for those of us who don't know what the Yakuza (laughs) is, why don't you tell our audience? The Yakuza is basically the mafia in Japan. And they're even more ruthless than the mafia here. So we come out of judging one night, it's 3am in the morning. And one of my judges is this guy, Nigel Barker, like this British good looking guy. And we come into the parking lot and there's like six Yakuza guys there dressed in these suits and stuff. And that guy's there and he's drunk off his ass. He's an American guy, by the way. And he starts picking a fight and there's this fight that breaks out in the parking lot with the Yakuza. And Nigel's like trying to fend off this guy and there's, it's, it's, it's a huge melee. <laughs> we finally break it up. I see the guy that's drunk there. I'm like, we will talk about this tomorrow. We will meet at this hotel. We will talk about this tomorrow. This is unacceptable. The fight breaks up. And so for the rest of the trip, I'm sitting there trying to negotiate with this guy, just trying to buy time so that we could finish production and get out of the country. Because every day he's like, I'm going to turn you into immigration. I'm going to say the girls are prostitutes. They're going to be put in jail. You're going to be put in jail, blah, blah, blah. So we keep on negotiating, negotiating. How many days left? Three days. Just hold them up. Two days. And we would go to this hotel every day and advance them a little money and say, okay, there's more coming, more coming. And then we finally got out of the country. But I remember that 
when we first arrived in the country, the guy screwed up and we had like all eight of our girls being held in custody because they thought they were prostitutes. And the production was ending. I had to talk to CW and say, what are we going to do? We finally managed to fix the situation, get all the episodes in the can and we got out of there. Um, but there's been a couple of dicey times to show there and in China that's been crazy where it's very corrupt and violence on the horizon. Now, before I ask you the final questions that we normally go into, if you had to say what the most common characteristics of a model is, positive characteristics and the most common destructive characteristics as opposed to just a regular person who's not in that profession, what would you say they are? Well, besides beauty, obviously being the positive, you know, I would say on the, on the positive side, you know, when you get a person like who has the same characteristics as Tyra, a person who's like really loves the business, loves the world of modeling, is passionate about it and is self-motivated those are the people look just like in any business in the entertainment business wherever it is you're going to succeed you know i think with, with tyra if she wanted to be a doctor she would have been like an you know a very well-known doctor if she was a, an attorney she would become like you know hugely successful and as a model she was also blessed with great looks but the motivation and the drive she had and the, and the love for the business really made her successful on the negative side i think there are a lot of people who come out for our show who have very low self-esteem who don't have like a real skill set in life are not educated and they just want to be famous. You know, we're growing up in this culture now where Kim, you you can be famous for just being famous. It's like, you know, Kim Kardashian and all these people who like really don't have any real discernible skills, but yet they're, they're celebrities and people in society now in the U S see that they see these people standing in front of a step and repeat and they're on TMZ and they just want that. They, they, they don't have the right skills that they don't have any, you know, anything that they can do, but they have their looks. And so they want to become a model because they want to validate themselves. And it's for the wrong reason. It's, it's not, they care about the business. It's not, they care about being, but they, they have this idealized version of what it is. I'm going to be a celebrity. I'm going to be in front of a camera. You know, I'm going to make lots of money, but they don't have a passion for it. All they do is they want to be famous just so they can validate themselves and say, see, I belong, I exist. And those people never make it. Got it. All right. Yeah. Besides what you've mentioned, your biggest, most memorable disappointment and how it fueled you. Well, I would have to go back to the time where I got into that fight on camera at at MTV. And I I remember after that and I got fired that I was with my my first wife and one-year-old daughter at the time. And we, we had a vacation in Mexico uh, this was planned before I had gotten fired. We went down there and I was bitching and moaning to my, my wife. And I was saying, you know, this guy was a jerk. He's an asshole. He's so unprofessional, blah, blah, blah. And she looked at me. She said, you know something, Ken? If you work in this business, you're going to have those guys every day of your life. You know it, Barry. You, you deal with those people every day. Absolutely. And she goes, and if you can't deal with that, you're going to have the shortest career in the history, in history. Your, your career is over now. And I remember they went to bed that night and I sat on the beach from like 9 p.m. till 6 a.m. I just sat on the beach and I just stared out at the ocean. I thought about what she said. And I said, really, it's not his issue. It's really me. It's how do I deal with authority figures? Because I had this problem with authority figures. 
and I still do, but I just channel it in a more positive way now. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a e- I'm actually a very easy person to work with now. I mean, the one thing about me that people always say is like, I, I don't have a filter and I am very blunt to a fault, but I, I deal with, you know, my network and my partners in a much more healthy way now because they are the client. They are the people that air it. You got to really, you know, pay attention to them. You just have, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I've learned over the years how to say things in a more, uh, let's say, politically correct way that engenders cooperation than dissonance. And that was probably the key moment in my life when I sat on that beach that whole night and I said, yeah, it's, it, I can't just blame it on him. I got to take responsibility for my own behavior. And that really changed everything for me. Your proudest moment professionally? Professionally? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my proudest moment is that uh, I've been able to, in my, I'm not going to say it's a moment, it's, it's just period. Top Model has given me the ability to just now develop and do creative things that I want to do right? It's given me freedom and it's allowing me to like, now we focus on scripted and movies and all this sort of stuff. And I don't have to produce something that I don't want to produce. You know, I don't have to take everything that comes over the transom. Like a lot of production companies have to do to stay alive. We have the luxury in my company to be able to develop what we want to develop. And that's how this Joy Mangano thing came up. And we have two other features that are about to get set up right now that I wrote. And, uh, you know, we have TV series that we're setting up, but all those projects are, are passion projects for me. And I'm really grateful to that because I'm, there was, <laughs> you know, there was a very f- famous thing that, that Brandon Tartikoff had said to me one time is like, he was a legendary network executive worked for years being the buyer. So he didn't know the harsh reality of the business. Right. And then he lo- he left his job and he became a producer and he came up to me one day and he said, uh, he was really frustrated because I was at the network and he was pitching to me, which was bizarre. And he pulls me aside and he says, Ken, uh, you know something, Ken, I love this business. I love making things. I just hate asking permission to do so. <laughs> Isn't that, doesn't that t- tell you everything? That's the business. Wow. Well, you know, as we, as we know, when somebody else is writing the checks... You're not in control. Absolutely. All right, last question. What advice do you have for the young person starting wherever they are in Larchmont, New York, or wherever it is who's, uh, you know, maybe in a cubicle somewhere or uh, in a 10 by 10 office Mm. wondering where their life is going to go and how to take the steps to have the kind of career that you have and also speak to the artists out there and you've worked with so many times and what they have to do to break through and create those holy shit moments to get somebody like your attention and to get to the next level on the other side of the camera. Well, look, I will say this. I think the entertainment business is to me the greatest business in the world, but it's only a great business for people who are self-motivated and have the discipline to really kind of make things happen for themselves. Look, Barry, you're the perfect example of that. That thing that you did at the Comedy Nest, you know, at uh, Just for Laughs, you put your ass on the line. You put your money up on the line. You That was completely out of the box. Everybody who succeeded in this business has stories like yours. Okay, I have stories like that. You have stories like that. Everybody does. If you're a, a, a comedian, you know what? 
the great thing about the, the this time period right now is there's the internet. You can go out and you can create videos for yourself. You know, it's like Kyle Mooney did all the crazy stuff on you know with you know on on the web and that got him the attention of SNL and all that kind of stuff. You're a comic, you're an actor, you're an actress, create projects for yourself. Don't sit there and wait and say somebody's got to write something. Write it for yourself. Create a character for yourself. Get it uploaded. Get it viral. Go on Twitter. Go on Instagram. You know, do, do a Vine thing, you know. There's this guy who's doing six-second Vines, this, this French guy that's like huge now. He's making millions of dollars. He was homeless a year ago. And so you – people are created off of the web now. Everybody, you you scout for people off the web. Do that. But you have to create projects for yourself. You know, like I am now focusing my career on the scripted world. Nobody really wanted to look at me in the scripted world. I'm He's, he's an unscripted guy. But I just put my nose to the grindstone. We have all these projects now that are going. If somebody couldn't write the thing, I'll write it myself and I'll get traction off of that. We're going to do a movie this summer, an uh, indie movie that I'm going to fund myself. Because I believe in it, and I know we're going to do it, and it's gonna. I know we're going to get a big deal out of it. So you have to be self motivated, and you have to think outside of the box. You can't follow the crowd. You got to do it on your own. And if you don't, chances are going to work against. But if you're bold, like Barry Katz, and you do things on your own, and just don't be afraid. Fortune favors the bold. That's the famous saying, and that's true. Ken Mock. You were worried about coming here, and you were worried about being equal or better or in some ways comparable to the people on the show. And I don't. And you have exceeded <laughs> all of your expectations, and you, Ken Mock, have the highest fucking expectations. Well, so that was incredible. Our audience is going to love it. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, Barry. The legendary Barry Katz. <laughs> As always, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.